Second Peter is probably one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. And probably one of the reasons why it's so neglected, this is my theory, is because it's so devastating. Peter's purpose in writing this letter is to encourage his readers to mature in their understanding and practice of God's grace in Jesus Christ because they're being threatened by false teaching. False teaching that might cut off their spiritual growth. And chapter 2 really is ground zero. Verse 1 begins, There will be false teaching among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Teachings which, that means if believed and practiced, send a person to hell. Which is there where these false teachers are going if they don't repent. Brothers and sisters, there's a time when pussyfooting around an issue, the use of euphemism, endless kindness is not appropriate. If the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? And enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, false teachers in the church introducing heresy to the flock, false teachers with eyes full of adultery, spreading their moral filth and preying on the recently converted. Those people must be denounced. And in no uncertain terms. And for the rest of the chapter, that's just what the Apostle Peter does. He's relentless. Uh, Negative descriptions of and warnings about false teachers abound. Which gives my message today a certain tone. Uh, Frankly, folks, I found this to be a difficult text to craft into a sermon. Bold and arrogant. Unreasoning animals born only to be caught and destroyed. Blots and blemishes, blackest darkness is reserved for them. A dog that returns to its vomit. A a washed sow that returns to wallowing in the mud. Now, some Christians might recoil at that sort of language. We might be thinking, Peter, brother, there's there's no call for those sorts of like ad hominem attacks. Uh, Do you have to be so forceful? Do you have to sound so condemnatory in your judgment here? But to that, I would say, beloved, if we're embarrassed by the force of Peter's denunciation, our embarrassment may be a testimony to the degree that we've departed from the apostolic gospel. Try thinking of this in parental terms. Mom, Dad, Think of your children. Think of them in their, in their tenderness, in their, in their growing years. Now imagine people moving amongst your kids, drawing them away, teaching them insidious lies, and introducing them to filthy practices. There isn't a parent here who wouldn't understand the rightful emotion rising, right, to defend our children and to dispense with these characters immediately and forcefully. That's part of the responsibility of the shepherd of souls, and Peter is the shepherd of this group of sheep. Wolves are moving amongst his flock, and so the apostle appropriately, very appropriately, deals with the false teachers in this fashion. I'm reminded of the remarks made by the judge who passed sentence on American serial murderer Ted Bundy. This is what he said in court. The court finds that these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious and cruel, extremely wicked, shockingly evil, vile, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. This court does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant Theodore Robert Bundy. Those are strong words, but when the nature of Bundy's crimes is considered, any language that might mitigate or ameliorate their offense would itself be evil. Bear in mind, these are real people Peter's talking about, first century men living out their workaday lives, individuals with eternal souls who have slowly but surely turned their back on all that represents truth loveliness and goodness and by their own doing find themselves now in the most dreadful predicament 
William Barclay writes this, For a while, such an individual may enjoy what he calls pleasure. But in the end, he ruins his health, wrecks his constitution, destroys his mind and character, and begins his experience of hell while he is still on the earth. And even though this book was written 2,000 years ago, Peter's sketch of people seeking to lead the church of Jesus Christ astray could have been drawn by someone analyzing the church in our own day. There is nothing new under the sun. And that's never more true than in the case of those who depart from the truth of the Christian faith, who then lead others in the church astray with their false beliefs. So I've divided what the apostle says In these last 13 verses of chapter 2 into four parts, you can see this in your bulletin. We see the false teacher's arrogance, the false teacher's sensuality, the false teacher's hollow and deceptive teaching, and the false teacher's serious plight. So first, their arrogance, the arrogance of the false teachers. Well, arrogant how? Look at verse 10b. Peter writes, bold and arrogant. They are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, they they should be afraid to do that, and if they knew the score, they would be, but they're not. Why? Because of their arrogant audacity. Now, the NIV translation, celestial beings, that conceals uh, an important ambiguity in the Greek text. Uh, uh, The literal translation is simply glories. So bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on glories. So glorious beings of some kind is meant, which is why the ESV translates it the glorious ones. And a few commentators, more in the past than today, think Peter is referring to local church leaders. Bold and arrogant, these false teachers are not afraid to heap abuse on pastors, the glorious ones. And though Alex and I would love to be considered the glorious ones moving in your midst, uh, I'm not sure the idea is really biblical. Uh, it's much more likely that Peter's referring to angels here. And, and this might sound strange, but he's referring to evil angels, uh, fallen angels, because Peter contrasts these glorious ones who are reviled by the false teachers in verse 10 with the angels in verse 11, which since Peter commends their activity, they must be good angels in verse 11. So let me just take a, a running leap at this verse, okay? I'm going to just add some interpretive helps along the way. So look at verse 10. Bold and arrogant, the false teachers are not afraid to heap abuse on evil angels. Yet even good angels, although they are stronger and more powerful than evil angels, they do not heap abuse on evil angels when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. Are you familiar with the proverb, uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread? It's not a biblical proverb, but it's a good one, I think. Fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Well, that principle applies perfectly to the arrogant stupidity of these false teachers. Now, how the false teachers are heaping abuse on evil angels, we don't know. Uh, Please don't ask that in the q and I have no clue. Peter doesn't give us enough information. And really, the Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about angels in general. Uh, Wayne Grudem has a good chapter on angels in his systematic theology. That's a good resource, I think, for everybody to have. Uh, You should read it. Um, But what is clear is that though fallen, the evil angels still retain an exalted rank. That's why Peter calls them the glorious ones. Presumably, right, though fallen, they still bear the impress of their glorious origin. And confirming this interpretation, I'm not just talking through my hat here, okay, is Jude 8 and 9, which contains a rebuke to false teachers that's very similar to what we have here in 2 Peter 2. I'll just read that text, Jude 8 and 9. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him, the devil, for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. 
Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do not understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. And so by referring to the archangel Michael, who's the good guy, right, and Satan, Jude makes that contrast very explicit between good angels and fallen angels. So that's why I'm reading that back into this text. Just, New City, three things to bear in mind. I mean, this is a very confusing text. It's a very confusing doctrine in a way. There's three things to keep in mind. Number one, when the Lord returns, we will judge evil angels. We read about that in 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Number two, angels are not created in God's image. Only human beings are, which gives us a unique dignity and responsibility. Three, However, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, that human beings are made what? A little lower than the angels. And in their arrogance and ignorance, the false teachers are in some way, I don't know how, denying the fact that evil angels still retain an exalted rank. Verse 12, But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct. Now, that isn't to say that their ignorance lets them off the hook. This is a culpable, guilty kind of ignorance. Um, If you'll you'll pardon the imagery, when one dog mounts another dog on your front lawn in broad daylight in front of your dopping kids, (laughs) it's not morally wrong, right? I mean, they're animals. It's instinct. There's no such thing as canine fornication. Uh, But Peter is comparing an animal's lack of rationality and the false teacher's sinful ignorance. They are creatures of instinct, which refers to sexual immorality. But as we'll see in our second point, the false teacher's lifestyle, it's morally filthy. It's characterized by sexual sin. Peter's point of comparison here is between the instinctual behavior of animals and the false teacher's lack of concern for moral guidance. They behave like animals. They follow their natural, fleshy appetites without regard for spiritual guidance. They are like unreasoning unreasoning animals, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. So just like unreasoning animals, animals destined only to be slaughtered, the false teachers... And their unreasoning arrogance and moral filth are likewise destined for the slaughter of God's judgment. It's very, very intense language. Verse 13, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. And going back to what I said last week, New City, we must pray for men, pray for false teachers like Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, Creflo Dollar, T.D. Jakes, Rob Bell, Pope Francis. Pray the Lord would smash their wicked ministries and the false gospels they peddle. May the Lord grant them repentance before it's too late and all who follow them. Which moves us into our second point. The false teacher's sensuality. And I'm using the word sensual deliberately. It's difficult to to think of a better word to summarize Peter's second main accusation against the false teachers. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines sensual as relating to or consisting in the gratification of the senses or the indulgence of the appetite. That's it exactly. That's precisely the sin Peter attributes to the false teachers in this next section. And the apostle paints his picture of sensuality with eight characterizations. I've listed them in your handout. Number one, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Or as the NLT puts it, the New Living Translation, they love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. Because in Peter's day, as in our own day, indulgence of sinful pleasure usually takes place under the cover of darkness. When are the clubs and bars full of drunk people? At night. When do prostitutes and their johns hook up at night? Not that the time of day matters, particularly, I mean, sin is sin, but indulging in these evil practices in broad daylight is a sign that these false teachers are completely shameless. Number two, they are blots and blemishes. 
And if we look ahead to chapter 314, Peter encourages Christians, as we look forward to the return of Jesus, to make every effort to be found spotless and blameless. It's difficult to bring this out in an English translation, but spotless and blameless are exact antonyms of the two words that Peter uses here to describe the false teachers. They are blots and blemishes. Number three, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. And here Peter is talking about the early Christian love feast held in conjunction with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. In the early church, the Lord's Supper customarily occurred in the context of a larger meal, a church dinner party, a sort of potluck, really, called a love feast. It was an early church fellowship meal connected with the Lord's Supper, but distinct from it. And communion was held as a meal within a meal, uh, just as the Last Supper in the upper room was a meal with bread and wine within the larger meal of Passover. It's the same idea. So here, Peter's rebuking the false teachers for indulging in their own sinful pleasures, even as they continue to join with the church in celebrating the atoning work of Christ at their fellowship meals. Shameless. No, no fear of God. Verse 14, number four, with eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. Actually, Peter's language is more vivid than that translation. He claims the false teachers have eyes full of adulteresses, full of adulterous women. That means they look at every woman, even in the church, as a potential partner in their lust. Now, this might be me. I'm a a strange sort of fellow, but do you ever walk through your neighborhood, and it doesn't matter if that's, you know, uh, the bridal path or Jane and Finch, and, and wonder about the sin going on behind closed doors, behind pulled curtains. Which families have an alcoholic parent? Who's embezzling funds at work? Who's addicted to porn? Who's leading their children down the path of choose-your-own-gender destruction? Greed, false gods, marital infidelity, sexual abuse. Hopefully, those sorts of thoughts will prompt us to pray for our neighbors. We want to be salt and light. And of course, but for the grace of God, there go I. But a given part of the population is given over to that sort of sin, and much more. They lust after it. They want it. How many churches in Toronto, in Canada, how many churches where the pastors are men with eyes full of adulterous women. God help us. It seems every week we learn of another Christian leader who's been found guilty of sexual sin. Meanwhile, we hear sad tales of survivors who've been abused and cast aside by leaders craving power. Peter goes on, they seduce the unstable. And that's not sexual seduction. It's seductive false teaching. Peter's already told us in chapter 1, verse 12, that Christians need to be people who are firmly established in the truth. But it's those who fail to become firmly grounded in Christian truth, the unstable, that the false teachers find very easy prey. These, you said, these types of men, they prey on the vulnerable. That's the way it always is with false teaching. False teachers can't force their opinions on anybody. They can only persuade people to adopt their ways of looking at things. And false teaching often has a very attractive veneer. People like new ideas. And false teaching, by definition, trades in new ideas. And people like teaching that might make them feel less guilty about their own sin, about their own failings. Which begs the question, how does a local church guard against false teaching? Who's responsible for that at New City? I mean, we don't want these kinds of people here. Who's responsible for guarding against false teaching? The elders? Is that, is that our job? 
Is it the deacon's job? The congregation? Is it, is it all down to a church's robust statement of faith? Think of this as a sermon bonus, folks, right? No extra charge. I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Turn there in Scripture. I don't have the page number, alas, but Ephesians 4 is one of the most important, one of the most foundational passages in all the New Testament regarding how the local church is to function and how it combats false teaching. The Apostle Paul, he writes this in verse 7, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 11, speaking of these gifts, so Christ himself gave the apostles their gifts, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. New City, Pastor Alex and I, our aim is to equip you, God's people, through our teaching and our praying and protecting and modeling the gospel. Our aim is to equip you for works of service. Our aim is to equip you, the church, to do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. It may be edified so the congregation can be faithful to Jesus and grow in Christ-likeness. And if it happens in this way, as it should, as it's biblically prescribed here, then here are the results. Look at verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. There we have it. That's the antidote. This is how a local church keeps false teaching out. It's the day-to-day work of the congregation as it's equipped by the elders. Brothers and sisters, in our intellectual Western world, we sometimes think the primary way of establishing doctrinal stability in a church is by strong doctrinal formulations, right? Just give a church a good statement of faith, something written in orthodox stone, like the statement that we have here at New City Baptist Church, and then just sit back and watch that church remain faithful for the rest of her days. Or we can think doctrinal stability and church unity is achieved through an excellent pulpit ministry, right? Just get John Piper into this pulpit, and that church will remain faithful and unified and growing in Christ-likeness till kingdom come. Is that how it works? Well, we certainly need more of both those things. We need faithful preachers. We need faithful church creeds. But by itself, brothers and sisters, those things aren't enough. We also need churches where each member sees himself, herself as God's captive. Now God's gift to the church with the purpose of serving the whole body, of building up the whole body. Is that how you see yourself? God's captive, now God's gift to the church with the purpose of serving the whole body, building up the whole body, edifying the whole body. That's what's going to issue in doctrinal stability. That's what the text says. Instead of being carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming, we're stable and we're grounded in the unchanging gospel of Jesus Christ. But how does that happen? It's not the church leaders who protect the doctrine. It's you. It's the congregation. It says the congregation does the work of ministry that the church matures in unity and into the fullness of Jesus Christ. We care for each other. We're looking out for each other. And as each of us stays true to the gospel, the church as a whole stays true. And that's something that even the best, the most robust statement of faith can't accomplish. And I think our statement of faith is excellent. That's something the preaching ministry of a Charles Spurgeon or a John Piper or a John MacArthur can't accomplish. 
And yet the congregation doesn't do this work of edification on their own, do they? No, they do this as they're equipped. Equipped by the preachers and teachers of the word. Which means for your part, New City, you need to avail yourself of all the means of grace provided to you by this local church. You need to be a good member. You need to be a faithful member of this church. Folks, our Sunday corporate worship begins at 10.30 a.m. I'm speaking primarily now to the members, all right, of New City. Anybody can be late one Sunday, I understand. I mean, downtown there's just parades and marathons happening every week. Anybody can be late. But if you're consistently five minutes late, 10 minutes late, 15 minutes late, that needs to stop. The edification of the body doesn't begin when I start preaching this sermon at 11.15. Husbands, brothers, I'm looking to you to ensure your families gather with the church on time. This is part of leading your household well, ensuring that your family is participating in the full corporate worship of your local church. Even if that means leaving the house 20 minutes before the time you're currently leaving. It's loving. It's loving both to your wife and your kids, as well as it's a good witness to both and to your church family. What else can you do? I would say listen attentively to sermons. Take notes. Read along in the sections in your Bible that I mentioned during the, during the sermon. Uh, when it's being offered, come to the Sunday school class. Or at the very least, listen to the podcast. There's a good catalog of teaching being built up there. Frankly, there's all sorts of things I more or less assume you know about God and the Bible because I cover it in Sunday school. Here's a good one. Be certain you read through the membership testimonies before our quarterly meetings. Be certain you do that. That's one of the most important roles you have as a member of this church. Conscientiously attend our quarterly members meetings at least the first part, dealing with taking in new members and seeing members out. Who does the Bible recognize as having the authority to publicly recognize and affirm as being true Christians in this world? The local church. The local church publicly recognizes and affirms true gospel confessions and confessors through the ordinances and rejects the faults. Rejecting the faults. Absolutely essential. Right? You're, you're on the front line with that. Jesus has given you the keys to bind and to loose. Is that a good gospel confession? Is that a good gospel confessor? Yes or no? Also, be certain you work through the elder qualifications homework we send out to the members when a potential future elder is being considered. Take that survey very seriously. The completion return on that from the membership should be 100%. Every member, no excuses. The pastors you choose are the ones equipping you for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and wind by every wind of false teaching. Right? But if the church chooses the wrong sort of men for their pastors, that's not going to happen. Talk with the other members of this church. Have theological conversations. Have doctrinal conversations. Be in people's lives. Open up your homes in hospitality. Love your fellow members. Know what they're struggling with. Know what their idols are, what their temptations are. That's oftentimes where bad teaching comes in, right? Bad theology that promises that the pain and the grief can be done away with, replaced with wealth and health, but it's just idol tickling. Conscientiously commit to work through your discipling ISF rotations every four months. You want to have as wide an exposure to the membership here as possible. If you're too busy to help your brothers and sisters grow to be more like Jesus Christ, then die to something in your life 
and make the time. Be willing to confront people on their bad doctrine, their sub-biblical views of God, their immature outlook, not pugnaciously, but humbly, boldly. Be much in the word, Christian. Be much in the study of scripture. Be growing in your knowledge of God. Don't waste your time binging the next season of whatever on Netflix. Why not instead read a good commentary on the book of Numbers or the Gospel of John? Stretch your mind. Read some theological books or articles with footnotes. Read some good missionary biographies. David Brainerd, John G. Patton, William Carey. Read about some important figures from church history. Augustine, Calvin, Luther, Tyndale, Edwards, Whitfield. I have books on all these guys. You can, you can borrow them from me. Read, read memoirs of an ordinary pastor. It's all about Don Carson's dad, church planting in Quebec in the 40s and 50s. It's fantastic. It might be the best book he's written. Beloved, if we want to keep New City free from false teaching, then we all have to be doing our part. Sitting under the faithful teaching ministry of the elders. Participating in the corporate worship of the church. All the corporate worship. Reading the word on our own. Studying it and being transformed by it. Prayer, both private and corporate. Christian discipleship. Helping each other become more like Jesus. And conscientiously exercising the ministry of the keys. Binding and loosing. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. All right, that was all for free. Continuing now with 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 14b. But you can see why I spent the time I did on that. It, directs, it relates directly to this. The next part, the next thing that characterizes these false teachers, they are experts in greed. Or more literally, having a heart that has been trained in greed. And that word is drawn from the realm of athletics. It speaks to a long, hard, and disciplined struggle to become proficient in a sport. So if someone, think of someone who spends hours in the gym, lifting weights, pumping iron, right? They're devoted, they're dedicated. It's a lifestyle. And these false teachers, they're so devoted. They're they're so consistent in their greed that they must have worked very hard at it. And for a long time, they have a heart that's been trained in greed and that word greed is a broad term it doesn't just relate to money it can relate to a uh, be a desire for more sexual pleasure power food whatever and then he says an accursed brood literally children of curse that's how he thinks of them children of curse verse 15 they have left the straight way and whoa slam on the brakes there that means At one time, these teachers were faithful. At one time, they were on the straight way, the straight path. But now, verse 15, they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. So, Peter has already charged these false teachers with greed, but what he does now is he fleshes out this charge by providing an Old Testament example. According to the book of Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible, this character Balaam was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites in their wilderness wanderings. King Balak was afraid that the Israelites were going to come in and take over the land. Balaam was known as some kind of prophet, and he was offered a lot of money to come and curse the Jews in hopes that uh, that would put some sort of he would put some sort of plague on them, and then they would be destroyed. And, and Balaam wants to do this because the money is considerable. But God warns him. He says, listen, you don't go. But eventually God lets Balaam go, but with one condition. He says, if you go, you only say, Balaam, what I tell you to say. So Balaam looks over the valley and there's Israelites everywhere. Hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And King, King Balak says, name your price. Balaam, the gold is yours. Just give him a good curse. So Balaam seeks the face of God, and he comes out with an oracle that's full of praise and benediction for the Jews. And 
King Balak is none too pleased about that, so he ups the ante. Balaam, I'll give you even more money. Come and, come and take a good look at them from this angle. You know, but instead, Balaam blesses them again and again and again. Balaam doesn't curse them. But we're told several chapters later what he does do, and it's despicable. He doesn't overtly curse them in the name of the Lord. He doesn't call down judgments upon them. Instead, he says, King Balak, listen, I'm a prophet of God. I can't curse them if God doesn't curse them. This isn't magic I'm doing here. But if you've got problems with these people, what you need to do is be friendly with them. Send in your most charming young women. Send in your handsomest young men. Head for intermarriage. Head for compromised religion. Offer them opportunities to serve in your pagan temples. Make sure you get involved in their worship. Mix it all up because the fact is their God is a jealous God. And if those people get involved in stuff like that, you won't have to worry about a curse falling down upon them. God will be so angry with them. He'll judge them himself. And that's just what happened. And eventually Balaam is destroyed. So look at verse 15. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now, obviously, the rebuke Balaam received from the donkey was a result of a miraculous intervention by God, but Peter emphasizes the ironic symbolism. Balaam's sin is irrational, and he is rebuked by an irrational animal. Verse 17, these people are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. He, he just keeps piling it up, piling it up. These false teachers promise spiritual vitality, but they can't deliver it. They're spiritual charlatans. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. That is the darkness of hell. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. By their false doctrine, right? By their empty, their boastful words, false teachers appeal to sinful and licentious desires and entice people away from the truth. But they don't go after just anybody. It's like a lion hunting on the Serengeti. They always go after the weak animal, right? The baby. And in the same way, false teachers are very clever in picking their targets. They dangle their lure, and their, their lure is their empty, boastful words, in front of people, Peter says, who are just escaping from those who live in error. Just escaping from them. So I would say, Breno, Shelley, Christina, Angela, Desiree, Harmony, you're all relatively new Christians. You're all recently baptized. Take heed. You are especially the vulnerable target of false teachers. They're, they're empty and boastful words because you're still in the process of escaping the entanglements of your past life. You're still distancing yourselves from all the pagan values to which you so recently belonged. And you should know your church is here to help. Verse 19, they promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And this is about the only place in the whole chapter where Peter touches on the false teacher's doctrine. Unfortunately, it's not super specific. Freedom from what? Freedom from fear of angels? Freedom from the final judgment? Well, both are possible, but I'm more inclined to think this is related to morality. The false teachers are advocating freedom from any external moral constraint. I think that's how to take it because Peter's already dealt with the false teacher's sensuous lifestyle in verses 13 through 16 and verse 18 as well. And we have evidence elsewhere in the New Testament of a tendency to abuse the free grace that's available in the gospel by turning it into a license to sin. What's, what's probably the most famous chapter in the Bible on that very thing? Do you know? It's a good one to have in your back pocket. Romans 6. 
It actually starts off with that. Turn to Romans 6 for a minute. Just keep your finger there. It begins, shall, Paul begins, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Now, understanding the limits of what Paul is asking in that verse is absolutely essential. And it's very, very closely tied with the text that we're considering today, especially in our concluding point, point four. So I just want to explore this for a few minutes. All right. Christian, let me ask in the time after God justified you in Jesus Christ. Have you ever sinned? Yes. Right? We all have. Just this week, each of us has committed individual acts of evil and rebellion against God. But that's not what Paul's getting at in Romans 6. He asks, shall we go on sinning? Not isolated acts of unrighteousness, temporary backsliding or a sinful lapse, but rather a whole way of life that's pursued persistently. He's talking about the justified believer's committed relationship to sin, persevering in sin, whether it's a big sin, small sin, doesn't matter, staying involved in sin, unrepentantly, habitually, nurturing sin. In other words, Paul is talking about slavery to sin, of sin reigning over the justified believer. Shall we go on sinning? So that grace may increase. Verse 2, by no means. And in the Greek text, that's the strongest negative possible in Paul's vocabulary. May it never be. The King James Version, God forbid. Or the J.B. Phillips translation, very helpful. Shall we sin to our heart's content and see how far we can exploit the grace of God? What a ghastly thought. Verse 2, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So, with all those glorious verses, powerful verses in our hearts, turn back to Second Peter 2, but keep your finger there. I want you to keep your finger in, in chapter 6. But verse 19 now, they promised them freedom, these false teachers, freedom from the constraints of God's morality, while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Again, very strong language. I, I recall using that phrase actually in the pulpit at a Good Friday service a few years back, slaves of depravity. And one of our members at the time, Crudo, um, had invited one of his friends from work, I think, to the service. And that was the line that his guest remembered, (laughs) that he talked about later with absolute disbelief and scorn. He thought it was so extreme, so religious. A slave of depravity. Ah, give me a break. But Peter reinforces the point by quoting a proverb. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. Again, what does the Apostle Paul teach in Romans 6, verse 16? Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Friend, whom do you serve? Who is your slave master? Sin or righteousness? Sin or God? The big picture of texts like Romans 6, 2 Peter 2, is that the reality of justification by faith doesn't produce Christians who are cavalier about sin. Real, real Christians are not indifferent to sin. We're dead set against sin in our lives. The faith that alone justifies is never alone. It always brings a holiness of life with it. Always. Is that how it is with you? Is that truth, Christian, evident in your life? Finally, and in conclusion, the false teacher's serious plight. And what we clearly see is that Peter doesn't have in view people who have been 
enthusiastic false teachers from the beginning of their professional lives, nor is he thinking of genuine Christians who sadly have slipped into some sort of temporary backsliding. No, these people once lived sinful and perhaps debauched lives, but then, for a time, they escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For a time. But now they're again entangled in the world and all its corruptions and are overcome. Verse 20. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. And there are all sorts of lessons we can take from that verse, but one of the big ones is this. Christian, don't ever be shocked by apostasy. We can't afford to be so theologically naive. Don't ever be shocked by apostasy. Be grieved by apostasy. Yes, may it drive us to our knees in prayer for that person's eternal soul. It may it cause us to reflect on our own life of repentance or lack thereof. But we must never be shocked by apostasy as if the underpinnings of the gospel has somehow given way. And of course, what the Apostle Peter teaches here is consistent with what the Bible teaches elsewhere. There are people who embrace Jesus but then abandon him for the world again. But because they have knowingly and openly now rejected the truth, their judgment will be worse than it would have been otherwise. Pastor John MacArthur writes these sobering words, The false teacher, as Peter is describing him, can only be bred in the brilliant light of the truth of the gospel and the scripture. They can only be bred in proximity to Jesus Christ. They are not made outside Christianity. They're made inside. They're bred inside the church, half exhumed from the muck of wickedness, half in, half out. They eventually reject the truth, try to seduce all they can to fulfill their self-gratification, and then fall back into the muck. They go on sinning willfully and habitually. For them, as you read in Hebrews 6, there is no sacrifice for sins left. For them, there is only the greatest judgment, the hottest hell. For they have sinned against light. They have sinned against knowledge. And they have sinned against understanding. It says our Lord Jesus says in Luke 12, 47, The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready, or does not do what the master wants, will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know, and does things deserving punishment, will be beaten with few blows. Jesus is talking about hell. In, it's hell in both instances. A few blows for the one who didn't know the master's will, many blows for the one who did. Verse 21 it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. And so two parables prove true. Verse 22, a dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Do you see the connection? The, the, true, the true nature of these people never changed. A dog may leave its vomit for a while, but eventually it's going to go back to eat it. A sow might get spruced up and look clean, but it's still a pig at heart. And so it's always going to find that mud pit enticing. It can't keep away. It's in the nature of a pig to wallow in mud. And so the false seizures have returned to their own unclean domain. Beloved, listen, I'm not being dramatic I'm not trying to scaremonger. I'm faithfully preaching the word of God. Churches are full of people who at some point in time wanted to pull themselves out of the muck and mire of their sinful lives, get religion and get cleaned up. And many have become teachers and preachers and pastors and self-styled prophets. But they couldn't get out of the muck because they were never truly born again. And 
So they eventually sink back into the muck, even though they carry on in ministry. And there they wait, driven by lust, driven by greed, and a cursed brood, children of curse. And every once in a while, we see one of them exposed, don't we? You see what they, who they truly are. A dog returning to its vomit. A pig returning to the mire. All right, this has been a very heavy sermon. Uh, but let's land this plane with the closing two verses of Peter's epistle, the second epistle. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 17. How does, how does he end everything? Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, and boy, have we ever... Since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. We've been amply warned about the danger of false teaching and forewarned should mean forearmed, ready to resist the perverse attractions of the false teachers' heresies. New City, we must be constantly on guard in a constant state of watchfulness. Otherwise, as verse 17 says, we run the risk of being carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from our secure position. Do do you hear the paradox there? Fall from our secure position. That same paradoxical paradoxical blend of divine sovereignty and human responsibility that we saw back in chapter 1. Yes, Christian, the gospel of Jesus Christ provides a solid foundation for spiritual vitality in this life and glory in the next. Have confidence in that gospel foundation. Bank your eternal soul upon it. You can have absolute confidence in it. But we must be careful. We must be watchful that no false teacher seduces us with his empty and boastful words into falling from our secure position. Our security in Jesus doesn't condone a careless attitude toward our struggle with sin. Confidence in our status before God in Christ Jesus must never lead to presumption on God's grace, a presumption that leads us to toy with the danger of false teachers or to place serious striving after holiness on the back burner as we coast across the finish line with the busted neutral. And this biblical truth, what I'm teaching today, these warnings that we've all heard today are a means of grace that the Lord uses to motivate his covenant children to a lifetime of perseverance. And so as the Holy Spirit works through the word, May Scripture do its sanctifying work. And if you see, Christian, in your life, if you see spiritual drift, if you see other things in life competing with Jesus Christ and your allegiance to him, then repent. Repent and come back fully to him. Amen.